Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us. And this week's show is going to be a little bit different. We spent a lot of time talking about the bureaucracy of the defense acquisition system and the various things the military is doing and needs to do to get itself in a better position to adopt new technologies. We don't spend a lot of time talking about what those future technologies might be in specificity. We're going to do some of that in the coming hour. The occasion for this is the public release of a report to Congress by the Defense Intelligence Agency. The report is a list of some of the research projects DIA funded under something called the Advanced Aerospace Threat and Identification Program. There were 38 projects in all, and they range from things that seem somewhat plausible, like nuclear propulsion for deep space missions and laser weapons, to straight-up sci-fi, warp drive, travel through wormholes, invisibility cloaking. And, and there are two basic schools of thought on this kind of research. One is that it, it's ludicrous for the government to spend money on technologies that defy what we know about the laws of physics. Another is that technological advances don't really happen unless you think outside of the technological constraints that you have today. We're going to hear from both of those perspectives today. And we're going to turn the show over today uh, mostly to my colleague Jason Miller this week. He spoke with several science and technology experts about the DIA report. We're going to begin with Stephen Aftergood. He's the director of the Project on Government Secrecy at the Federation of American Scientists. And he filed the Freedom of Information Act request that uncovered the DIA list in the first place. The document uh, emerged from um, a defense intelligence agency program uh, that was called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And this, this, this program uh, came to public knowledge in late 2017 in connection with government uh, interest in unidentified flying objects. There have been and there often are uh, sightings of, of objects that are literally unidentified, and um, uh, uh, the military has to look into them to, to figure out, you know, do these pose a threat and so on. And so this DIA program was a, a, something of a more structured look at that issue, um, and um, it, it naturally became a, a subject of fascination for, for a lot of people, including myself, um, and when we understood from the reporting that the DIA had provided further information to Congress on what what they had been up to, uh, we were we wanted to follow up and and see what uh, what they had what information they had provided. So the the list of reports that we uh, received a couple of weeks ago. Um, was part of a letter that was sent to Congress saying, here's what we've been up to, here's a list of products that emerged from this program, which incidentally ended, I believe, in 2012. It's not an ongoing effort, but um, this is what resulted from it. Interesting that this is now six years old. Did you get a sense that they ended, there's no way to understand why they ended the project, is there? Um, there isn't. I mean, DIA has has kept a, a, a fairly low profile and has has been slow to respond to inquiries. Um, uh, the the implication of the 2017 reporting was that this was the 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 brainchild of Senate Majority Leader uh, Harry Reid at the time, and uh, and that he wanted this to happen, and that uh, one of his Nevada constituents 
might have been a beneficiary of of some of the funding that uh, resulted from Senator Reid's intervention. When you started looking at the reports that DIA worked on, there were some great titles. I mean, from wormholes to warp speed to dark matter to to invisible cloaking. Did you get a what was your first reaction when you read through this? Were you surprised or is this something that by now you're used to seeing kind of these these sci-fi like things in the government? Yeah, I, w- I was surprised, and honestly, my first reaction was a, 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 a touch of anger um, because the, some of the, judging from the titles, um, some of this work is so far-fetched that it approaches the the misuse of public funds. You know, we have a defense intelligence agency to support the Department of Defense and the nation in anticipating threats to the national security. And this work, at least judging from the titles, was far removed from any kind of near-term or even long-term threat to national security. So so I, it looked like it might well be a misuse of government funds. At the same time, as you look at the different titles, even though they are straight, you know, pulled straight from Star Wars or Star Trek or Harry Potter, there is a need, and I think, and let me know if you agree with this, for DOD to not just to look five years from now, but 30, 50, 100 years from now about what what is the art of the possible. And and maybe they could have done better titling, but but do you get a sense of, of at least that there's some value for DOD to look over that long, long term? not self-evident to me but but let me let me say it as as positively as I can I, I think DIA could argue if they if they wanted to participate in this discussion DIA could argue that there is value in um, supporting unconventional thinking at least on a on a small scale and and this really is a uh, in the scheme of things, a small pot of money that's involved here. They could say, look, um, you know, we're willing to be ridiculous if it means we can support somebody with uh, vision who is uh, really doing some um, far looking into the future and, uh, and telling us things that we would not have thought of uh, by ourselves. And, uh, you know, if, if 99% of the resulting work is junk, but 1% of it is brilliant, then it will all have been money well spent. That's an argument that I think could be made. And I think par- part of this is this understanding of if you don't kind of take off the, 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 the boundaries, right, if you keep people inside a guardrail, if you will, then maybe they don't ever come up with the next great stealth bomber, or maybe they don't come up with the next great uh, railgun or, or whatever it is. Uh, do you see the value in DOD kind of doing, it in, in, in your words, you know, kind of some far-fetched, maybe um, a, a work that maybe mostly is junk, but but may lead to the next great uh, invention? Um, you know, I, I think that argument could be made, and one could say that um, nuclear weapons were conceived of in fiction before they were ever a uh, practical reality. Buck Rogers had a ray gun uh, decades before the laser was invented. So there, there, there is, there is uh, potentially value in um, 
in supporting imaginative research. I would draw the line at things that are either known to be physically impossible, uh, let's say let's say time travel, which is a popular theme in science fiction, but has basically no <laughs> no chance of uh, of uh, coming uh, into reality. Uh, and um, you know, some of the other stuff is so far removed from any foreseeable threat to the nation. It's whimsical, you know, and. Um, uh if someone said there are there are better more urgent needs for uh the money that was spent on them um it would be hard to disagree and that actually you bring up a great point in terms of what has kind of was once science fiction now is reality uh, would you point could you point to have you I don't know how much you've thought about this based on this document from DIA but are there things that we thought of you know again 50, 100 years ago that are happening today that maybe, uh, you know, we're only, you know, we're only science fiction. I, I think, you know, when life, you know, in the 40s and 50s, we all thought we'd be doing flying cars by the 2000s. Yeah. Obviously, we're not at flying cars, but but we are closer to autonomous cars. As an example, do you, do you get a, is there stuff that you would point to over the past that says, yeah, in, in 1930, this seemed just illogical, but now today it's it's every day. I mean, the iPhone is a, a common example, is one. Yeah, I mean, and that I think that's what I had in mind when I was when I was talking about atomic weapons, which 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 figured in science fiction in the in the twenties or thirties, and uh, lasers or ray guns, which uh, which also predated uh, real directed energy devices by several decades. You know, there are probably other examples, but there are also examples of, of things that were imagined that uh, that never never came to fruition and never are likely to. Uh, you know, whether it's time travel or or uh, faster than light travel, warp drive, to to invest any money on that is uh, whimsical or frivolous. It's just not it's not in the cards. For humanity, uh, I think people are a little disappointed to hear you say that. Well, I'm <laughs> disappointed it's, it's, also, yeah. but um, uh, you know, and I'm, 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 I'd be happy to be proven wrong, but I don't see any reason to think that that's going to happen. The other piece of this, of course, is is the broader perspective, the R and D, what what modern warfare will look like, and and I don't think that you're a, a, maybe an expert on on, mo- on warfare, or modern warfare, but do you, do you get a sense that DoD's efforts and to, to invest in the warfare of the future, to de- are you able to talk a little bit to that and, and kind of how the duty investment works? I mean, is, is this this one is a good example of something that, as you said, you know, borderline frivolous, potentially whimsical at best, um, and and even if it's ninety nine percent junk, maybe there's a one percent chance that something good comes from it. But generally speaking, is is duty better at investing in 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 more sensible or logical? Uh, potential weapons of the future. I don't know if you follow it that closely. Um, it's uh, I, 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 I wouldn't claim to be an expert in the area. I would. My impression is that it varies, and that DoD is an enormous organization, and that uh, some corners of it work smartly and efficiently, and others don't. Um, I think for forward-looking research. 
the place to go is DARPA. We don't have a clear picture of everything they're involved in, but uh, but they have been great contributors to uh, military and civilian technology intermittently for several decades. Um, they've also gone down some dead ends, which which is is to be expected. Um, but they've done some useful things. Um, most of the most of the topics in the in the DIA list that was released have little to do with modern or any other kind of warfare and that's that's sort of you know what's what's worrisome if not annoying they just seem to have no clear connection to 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 military or national security requirements was it was there just as a, a an aside was there one that caused you the biggest laugh or the one that caused you the the biggest uh shaking of the head or one that you were oh it would be really cool if that was true was there anything stood out to you among the um yeah i mean traversable wormholes and stargates i mean you know please i mean that seemed like trolling you know to to provoke People like me and and people like us, like a lot of other people, um, they're basically saying, I, you know, I dare you to take this seriously, and uh, you know, at least I got a laugh out of it. That's Stephen Aftergood, the director of the Project and Government Secrecy at the Federation of American Scientists, talking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. We'll come back and get some different perspectives on futuristic weapons after a quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And on this week's show, we're exploring the role of far-out scientific research in the future of warfare. And again, the occasion for this is the release of a document detailing more than three dozen futuristic research projects the Defense Department had been funding earlier in this decade. The list was published in January thanks to a Freedom of Information Act request from Steve Aftergood at the Federation of American Scientists, who we heard from in the last segment. Federal News Network's Jason Miller has been talking with several experts about what to make of the list. Next, we're going to hear from John Amble. He's the editorial director at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Give me a sense, you know, when you read through the, the PDF, what were some things that came to mind, not necessarily about DIA, but just about the types of things, what, what modern war, what modern weapons could look like? What, what were some of the things that stood out to you as you read through that document? Yeah, I mean, at first glance, it looks like a pretty wild list of topics, doesn't it? And I think that that's going to be most people's reaction uh, to seeing these things, because they do seem sort of uh, far out there. Um, that being said, I think that if you look at it with a little bit more context about what DIA's role is and what, what you know, in the nature of intelligence more generally um, it's it's not quite as wild a list as it might seem at first glance. And t- why why don't you think it's as wild if you if you kind of bring in some um, perspective? Well, you know, if you start at sort of uh, first, you know, what is intelligence? Um, you know, it, 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 and it's a very tricky thing. I mean, there's a you know, I did my master's degree in, in intelligence and international security, and there's a huge debate. There is not a, a a sort of one single definition that everybody agrees on, but it's sort of one of those things that you kind of know when you see. But if you really break it down. Um, one of the one of the um, sort of requirements of strate- uh, of intelligence is to do strategic sort of forecasting. Uh, DIA is, itself is is a bit unique because it is it is one of the you know almost a dozen and a half uh, intelligence agencies that comprise the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, this is a big big intelligence enterprise, but each one of those agencies has a very particular mandate. 
DIA is DOD's intelligence agency, so it does do, you know, sort of military intelligence. And, you know, if it's hard to describe or sort of define intelligence, defining military intelligence is probably, uh, if not harder, at least as hard. Um, but uh, Michael Hayden, former director of the CIA and NSA, has uh, a quote that, that I really like. Um, he, said, he said, you know, in, in almost two decades of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. military has stopped doing intelligence and has started doing targeting. Um, and that's, really, that's a really interesting uh, comment, I think, from his perspective. But what he means is that you're collecting and analyzing actual intelligence for a very particular, uh, very per- particular uh, purpose, whether that's lethal targeting, non-lethal targeting, what have you. Intelligence, though, has a lot more to it. So if you start looking at kind of strategic intelligence, you're looking you know, generations into the future in some cases, certainly generations in terms of uh, equipment and weapons, platforms, and um, other sorts of procurement. And so it becomes difficult when, especially for, you know, DOD, who's been sort of fixated on tactical level intelligence for the better part of 20 years. Um, I think it's actually really important. This is an important sign that they're looking at some, some stuff that really seems really far out there because that's part of their job as well. And a lot of this does go back to sci-fi. You think warp speed, of course, you're going to think, you know, um, Star Trek or Star Wars, and you think of um, uh, wormholes, and, and you know, it's all the stuff that's out there. So, so give me a sense of, of what does modern warfare, you know, in terms of the direction it's going, you know, or, or, or is this really plucked right out of the sci-fi world, or is this there's there's some reality that's going on today, and that, you know, it may be 15 or 20 or 30 years off, but there's some reality that's happening today where, it's, you know, as as you said maybe it's not all that far out to say you know maybe warp speed as 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 you know newly defined is 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 something that's possible but of course it's not going to be like what we see in Star Wars but it'll be defined in a new way sure sure you, you know we're not going to have you're right we're not going to uh, future wars aren't going to look you know like intergalactic battles that take place on the on the big screen um however i think that you know when you start thinking about what is modern war you think about what war looks like today versus what it looked like in the past and then what it looks like in the near future and then into the deep future um there are some sort of discernible trends warp speed is a very good example uh, you know i don't know what the mathematical formula to determine what warp speed is um but just suffice it to say it's something really really fast well warfare has become more fast um as technology has has improved you know we have um you know, in 2003, right, during the invasion of Iraq, we had the Thunder Run to Baghdad. It was the fastest large-scale maneuver force movement uh, in, in the history of warfare, something that couldn't, would, would have been inconceivable a generation before, much less, you know, several generations before. Um, at the same time, you have uh, weapons with ballistics that are getting more rapid. You have computing power that enables decision-making, which makes those decisions more rapid. Everything is getting faster. And so I think if you take that to its... Uh, you know, I hesitate to say logical conclude or logical um, sort of endpoint, but certainly if you extrapolate out, you have to be you are thinking in terms of um, you know d- degrees of speed of, of 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 you know the sort of pace of of warfare uh, that are are inconceivable today. And that's I think the key here is that as you went back and said that it's DIA and whomever is doing this type of research that is part of their mission is to say what is today, but what is tomorrow, and what is. Five, ten, fifteen years from now, what, what, are, where do you, you know, as, as you, know, you guys at the Modern War Institute, what, what, are you guys studying? I don't know similar things. Are you guys? How, how are you guys looking at what modern war looks like? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. We, um, it, because it is something that's sort of difficult to define. How do you define modern? Um, but 
you know, we have a pretty good idea how we would fight tomorrow in, you know, what environment we're likely to fight in, what weapons we're likely to use, um, what sort of order of battle, what sort of organizations that we would, we would employ if we were fighting tomorrow, because they're going to look identical to today. But if you, you know, you start moving forward, there becomes the further forward into the future you look, the less certainty there is about it. And there comes a point when, um, you know, it, even five years from now, you know, we know how long it takes to field a new, say, um, rifle. Uh, we, so we know, you know, for the next, you know, it would be five years, it would be 10 years, you know, there's testing and fielding and bidding and, and this whole sort of um, system in place. If you look beyond that, we don't know. 20 years from now, we don't know if, if the rifle that, that every American soldier will be taking if they deploy and go to a war zone is going to um, be sort of an evolutionary development of the current M4 that, that, that most U.S. service members bring, or it's going to be something fundamentally different. And that's why, you know, you, you mentioned sci-fi. This list does look like kind of a, a very sci-fi type list. Um, I actually think that that's a useful sort of framework within which to look at some of these things because um, it's really difficult to um, do kind of this sort of net assessment of what warfare is going to look like uh, when you know, say 50 years from now, when, you know, some of the oldest equipment that we have in the U.S. military inventory are, say, like, you know, the Air Force bombers that have been around for over half a century. But most of our stuff is nowhere near that old. But if you start looking out a half a century, pick one or two things that we have in our inventory right now in terms of weapons, vehicles, aircraft, what have you, one or two of those things might be there. Everything else is going to be new. And to be able to sort of um, jump beyond the bounds of, you know, today's reality, to think through those things is a really important thing. Sci-fi helps us do that because if you sit down to, um, to you know, sort of write your real-world expectations about what war is going to look like in 50 years, you're going to be sort of constrained by your your very contemporary perspective. If you're a sci-fi author and you're and you're looking at something 50 years or 100 years or more into the future, you don't have those limitations. And so I think that sci-fi and and um, different different terms, of different you know, sort of literary arts and and works of fiction um, are actually really really useful to kind of help us burst through those boundaries that are just are the very natural inhibitions that humans have when we're trying to kind of predict the future. That's John Amble, the editorial director at West Point's Modern War Institute, talking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. They'll talk more about DIA's Advanced Aerospace Threat and Identification Program after another short break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serdu. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue a series of interviews, Federal News Network's Jason Miller did about the Defense Intelligence Agency's Advanced Aerospace Threat and Identification Program. It's a list of 38 research projects DIA funded, released in January under the Freedom of Information Act. In this part of the program, Jason's talking with John Amble, the editorial director at West Point's Modern War Institute. Amble argues that even though a lot of these projects, like Warp Drive and Invisibility Cloaking, have a definite sci-fi flavor, there are plenty of examples of technologies that are coming into existence right now that only existed in science fiction 50 years ago. Yeah, I think that there are um, things in terms of exoskeletons. This has been a big feature of like sci-fi writing for a long, long time. Um, you know, sort of the things that biomechanically enhance human beings. Um, we've seen them, you know, Starship Troopers, one of the most famous sci-fi books by Robert Heinlein. Um, they were these exoskeletons that allowed them to, you know, jump kind of leaps and bounds. Well, if you look today at what some of the services are using, are sort of testing, they're, they're testing exoskeletons that increase a, a, a soldier's 
load bearing capacity by 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 significant magnitude. So I think that's a good example. I, you know, I think that in terms of weapon systems, we have, you know, there's testing going on right now with rail guns. Um, those were things that were sort of a very big feature of, of sci-fi writing because the science was there, the sort of, from a theoretical perspective, the science was there. We kind of understood how this theoretically could work, but the, the sort of practical technology wasn't there yet. Um, and that started to catch up to there. So I think those are a couple of good examples. I don't know, you know, if you look at this list on, on the reports that DIA commissioned, um, you know, 95% of them might be things that, that sort of never come to fruition, but there might be one or two, and that's a really important sort of perspective to have. A lot of people will look at this and potentially, you know, kind of, you know, mock it or make fun of it. And, and, and obviously we want to be careful because as, as you've, I think, eloquently said, if you don't look, to, if you don't, if you don't get, take, rip off those, those bounds, right? If you don't, if you don't make those limitations and get rid of, you'll never discover the next great thing. And, and I think the military for, for years has been somebody uh, or an organization that's been able to do that. Is that why something like this research at DIA or stuff that DARPA is doing, uh, I was doing a little bit of research beforehand and, you know, they're asking for new design for a hypersonic plane. Mm-hmm. They need to ask those questions in order to get, you know, even the 10% solution or the 20% solution, is, is that what's so important about the, the DOD and the, the investments in R&D? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, if you, um, there, the way you organize systems um, to think about some of these things are going to drive whether or not they do so in an evolutionary uh, sort of format or in a revolutionary format. And if we think about the things that have had the most impact, again, this is from a, from a, a military perspective, since DIA is DOD's intelligence agency, the things that had the greatest battlefield impact were revolutionary. They were not incremental improvements on something that already existed. They were, they were, you know, whether or not it was, you know, the doctrinal revolution of Blitzkrieg in World War II, whether or not it was um, the invention of the telegraph, which vastly increased sort of uh, the distances over which military forces could communicate and thus coordinate, uh, which changed the battlefield dramatically. These were not, these were, these were revolutionary developments. And I think, you have to be looking kind of one, two, three, six steps ahead at things that seem pretty wacky maybe right now um, to be able to kind of wrap your head around um, potential future revolutionary developments. Which one, when you looked again, when you looked at all the DIA things, was there one that got you excited? Was there one that you said that would be really cool if, if the military could go down that path? Anything that stood out to you? I mean, every single one of them did. Um, but what I, I, th- I thought were a couple things were interesting. Number one, there was some stuff that was very space oriented, which I think is, um, is interesting in light of the, of, you know, the discussion about, um, the potential creation of a new, uh, fifth uh, military service in the space force. Um, I think the, you know, the warp speed one is interesting because it's got, it's got kind of a punchy, um, you know, name to it. It makes you kind of sit up and say like, oh, that, what, you know, that seems really fast. I, again, I don't know what, how fast warp speed is, but the faster speed is important. Speed is incredibly important on, uh, on the battlefield. Uh, you know, wars are won by, by forces that are able to act more quickly, decide more quickly and react more quickly. Um, so I think that, I think the warp speed one was one that was really, really important. I would also say just as sort of a caveat to all of it, like you said, you know, a hundred years ago, when people looked forward to what the 2000s were going to be like, it was all kinds of flying cars and all kinds of things that were going to be these big, crazy changes. And arguably the thing that has defined sort of um, the kind of techno-cultural uh, changes or, or, you know, characteristics of, of, the, of, the, of the 2000s is, uh, you know, the cell phone, the, you know, what I'm talking to you on, because even in the 1980s, when cell phones started becoming a little bit more popular in the 90s, when more and more people were getting them, 
I mean, who would have imagined that it would have become not only a, a device that we can talk on like we're doing right now, but also send messages through countless different sorts of, of, of mediums, it has a GPS capability. Obviously, it has a camera. It's a sensor, you know, from an intelligence perspective, it's a sensor in, in you know, about the most compact and powerful sensor that could ever have been envisioned. And I don't think that, for instance, you know, in, sort of depictions of, of the future 40, 50 years ago would I don't think would have captured how powerful that sort of change is. So while DIA is right, I think to be looking at these sort of big things, there's always the chance too that it's not it's not going to be you know a revolution that allows us to travel at you know super fast speeds or or to sort of capture the power of you know black holes in 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 space or leverage the power of black holes in space or or something. It might be something that seems a bit more innocuous, but um, it, it could potentially be you know uh, exponentially more powerful. Looking forward a little bit, you know, just just as as R and D, do you have any concerns about the the investments in R and D? Do you do you follow how DOD and, and the Congress are, are looking at R and D from a sense of of how to ensure that that the next great tank, the next great rifle, the next great whatever is under development today for again thirty, fifty, seventy five years from now? You know, I'll caveat all this by saying I'm not an R&D expert um, or a procurement expert or anything. But um, from from my vantage point, and probably the way that we would look at it, you know, from the you know the perspective of the Modern War Institute, we ha- we're very lucky uh, in that you know there there might be some people who look at that list and say, oh, why are we wasting money on you know a couple dozen reports on these things that seem so wacky. In the grand scheme of things, the amount of money that was spent on that is a tiny drop in the bucket. And of course, you know, looking forward, um, it's, you know, there, there's a certain amount of defense spending that is, that is unsustainable. And there's a need for frugality, a need for economy, a need for making difficult choices, not spending money um, sort of unnecessarily. However, I think that we're fortunate in DOD to have sort of a layered R&D process where you have R&D going on within particular organizations that are specific to their needs, but then you also have other layers like DARPA, like IARPA, um, that are uh, sort of able to, again, kind of look at things from a a more deep future sort of perspective. Um, So, you know, I I don't think I have any major concerns right now. I would say if you, you know, you take me to a casino and say, put a bet on who's going to come up with the best best seventh generation fighter jet or who's going to come up with, you know, the best take your pick of sort of military equipment. I'm going to put my money on the United States. John Amble is the editorial director at West Point's Modern War Institute. One of several interviews Federal News Network's Jason Miller did about the Defense Intelligence Agency's Advanced Aerospace Threat and Identification Program. One more of those conversations after another break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we wrap up our hour on futuristic technologies and their potential role in future warfare, we're focusing specifically on a pretty extraordinary document the Defense Intelligence Agency released in January under the Freedom of Information Act, listing dozens of research projects it funded several years ago on everything from warp drive to wormholes and other dimensions. 
Federal News Network's Jason Miller talked with several science and technology experts about the list. The final interview we're going to hear this hour is with August Cole, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. You know, the, the, the titles look like a science fiction author's wish list. And that actually, I think, accurately reflects what a future of war forecast for the next 20 to 30 years might look like. Uh, though it's easy to dismiss the sort of research that they were undertaking and exploring, the reality is the speed at which war is moving, uh, and it's increasingly so, is going to require the kinds of technical solutions, everything from the lasers that we see today becoming more operational to invisibility cloaks that an individual soldier could, could, could wear or it could be applied to, say, uh, an aircraft like an F-22. In many ways, well, we can laugh at the titles, right? That's easy to do. Um, it, it's it's we have invisibility cloaks in like a stealth fighter, right? Or you have uh, lasers with the some of the rail guns that the uh, Navy, for instance, is is testing. So, so do you get a sense that even though that the names are are maybe brings a smile or, or brings a, a a chuckle to us, that there's something more deeper behind what what DIA was really asking for the research and, and academia to look at. The elements of the kinds of technologies uh, on that list, you know, look like they would come from whether it's, you know, uh, the pages of a sci-fi book or, or you know, again, a, a kind of wish list, wish list from a future war. You know, the, the reality is the seriousness with which technological innovation needs to be treated uh, puts you in this paradox where you want to be creative and, and thinking through the kinds of uh, rule-breaking potential innovations out there. That, that can upend the sorts of assumptions about uh, what it means to fight a war in the same way uh, a breakthrough like the machine gun, the airplane, the long-range rocket did, or even radar. Uh, so, and so we're in this position where, you know, you both need to have a very loose kind of freewheeling style of imagination, mining everything from uh, science fiction literature to the kinds of traditional force ad activities, and then figuring out then what, you know, how do you make that real? Is is part of what DIA and, and really let's broaden out not just to, to this list of DIA, but really is this what places like DARPA and DIA and other uh, research and development? That's what they want from the, the the broader community. Hey, remove all barriers and tell us what's the art of the possible or what's the art of the impossible. Do you get a sense from this list and, and other uh, research you've done? I think it's it's critical to be able to dream a little bit, uh, and I know that may not be like a technical term. But it allows you to go farther beyond the traditional boxes that we often put ourselves in programmatically, you know, five-year plans or intellectually, uh, for example, not necessarily thinking about uh, some of the, the, the blind spots that we might have in our technological abilities or strategic assumptions. So, so the, the task or the mission for a group like DARPA or the future forecasters in, in the intelligence community, it is very much that, that there is, of course, an operational paradigm that, that you know, drives a lot of what's been done in the last 20 years, but particularly as we think through what great power conflict might be like should the U.S., say, and China uh, get into uh, conventional war, it won't look like past wars. It will have elements of them, say, let's say the importance of a naval warship, but it also simultaneously might have the importance of an AI-equipped missile uh, swarm. So, so these two things kind of need to be held in tension uh, at the same time so that you can have both old and new uh, present on the battlefield uh, simultaneously. I think that's a critical understanding that that is often missing when talking through 
what's ahead in conflict and the research list that that yeah, the uh, Federation of American Scientists uncovered, I think speaks to that. Now, you mentioned earlier that you were a co-author of a book called Ghost War. Talk maybe a little bit about your research. What, what have you seen in, in the research for the book and, and research beyond that? Where is the DOD going when it comes to the, the next generation, if you will, of uh, weapons, next generation of warfare? When, when we wrote Ghost Fleet, we had a rule that though the novel was set uh, in the 2020s, we wanted to ensure that for the credibility of the scenario we were proposing, that all the technology would be real or in development. And in fact, in the book, we footnoted it so that people would be able to read something, be incredulous, and then find out that, in fact, it was real, uh, whether that's, again, in autonomous ships uh, that are hunting submarines or uh, you know, types of cyber warfare. Now, what, what I find fascinating about the moment we're in is that there is an appetite to read a book like Ghost Fleet and to use it, uh, in a sense, analytically, to stoke the kind of thinking that is perhaps not a product of a conventional futures assessment. And at the same time, because you know, no one technology exists in a vacuum, you know, the way that, for example, we raise our children or date uh, has been fundamentally altered by the smartphone, right? You, know, you could have a parents who you know, met on Tinder, uh, stay in contact on Facebook when they're traveling and use apps to effectively raise their kid when, when they're home trying to cook dinner. So there, there are these paradigm shifts that are far more complex than like the application of just one discrete technology. So in a book like Ghost Fleet, we tried to really portray that complexity uh, because that's often missing, I think, when, when uh, casting into the future for a specific capability. Were you surprised by some of the technologies or some of the the potential technologies that you said either they're real or they're under development as you kind of wrote the novel? Were you surprised by some of them? Anything stand out to you as, well, uh, I remember people talking about that in the 70s or, or I remember reading about that in the 50s? In, in Ghostly, I, I, I think there's a, a really long list of, of technologies that are proven to be critical to the defense posture of the U.S., but might be vulnerable to everything from hacking or spoofing or jamming. Uh, I think I felt like that was a really important part of the book, that the kinds of ingenuity that the American military and civilian technology community are going to have to have in a great power conflict. Uh, it, it's probably much greater the demands upon that than we, we might otherwise assume. And, and that kind of leads me to, to, in a sense, my favorite technology from, from Ghost Fleet was no technology, right? The idea of like running an insurgency against a high-tech adversary, using everything from woolen blankets to hide your infrared to, uh, you know, doing the things that partisans have been doing for, for hundreds of years and hiding out in the mountains to, to evade drones or exosuit-wearing uh, uh, pursuers. And so I think that paradigm, again, that old and new being held in tension is a really critical thing to, to, to see when, when, you're, when you're trying to envision the, the future of conflict. The, the list of technologies that the DIA uh, was, was interested in, I think, speaks to the higher end and, and more fantastical side of that. But, you know, if you can imagine, even in a conflict where there might be fully functional cloaking devices or the ability to move matter uh, in a teleportation-like sense, you still may have to still come up against with the very traditional and human elements that, that uh, are, are consistent throughout warfare, whether it's disinformation, uh, whether it's political control, or whether it's just getting the stuff that you built to work right in the first place. You know, the more complex something is, the more the more vulnerable it potentially uh, can be. When you look at the the different technologies that are again under development or actually real today, does any of them stand out to you as something that again you know was only a part of sci-fi lore back in the fifties and the forties and thirties? I mean, I, I know stealth technology. I know lasers have come up. Are there anything else that would uh, you would say uh, this this was at one time? 
pure fantasy, and now look, it's 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 more reality than ever before. I think lasers are a great example. The idea of a laser weapon has captivated science fiction writers for decades, uh, and you could argue that we are as close now to being able to field those sorts of systems operationally, and yet it's still just slightly out of reach. But I think when you consider the ability to, for example, block and tackle the fundamental engineering problems that go with any of these wish list type technologies, you can really see how, how difficult it is. So it's you know drawing this line from idea to capability, it's not a straight one, it's quite squiggly. And the laser systems that you're seeing implemented to shoot down drones today, uh, to target missiles uh, as well, I think speak to that. You know, whether you'll have a laser powerful enough to sink a ship anytime soon is a really, really hard question to ask. I think you're much more likely in the near term to see something like a railgun be developed that allows you to shoot a conventional projectile, essentially a metal rod, right? That seems both uh, very traditional and old school, you know, combined with the incredible engineering that goes with the the massive energy generation that that fires that that very simple weapon. I mean, the railgun round, of course, isn't a simple rod. It is a complex piece of engineering itself, but I think it would be familiar to, you know, people looking at 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 a... capability like that you know, 50, 60 years ago than it would be in the future. And in some ways, sometimes the best technology is found by accident, right? I mean, if you think about, uh, we've all heard the story of penicillin, and sometimes if you go, well, can I invent X, and you actually invent Y, and Y is very valuable, I'm sure that's something that, that is also plays into this idea of, of let's be a little uh, out there and, and, and move the guardrails off of our thinking. I think that's a great point about innovation and ideas because you don't often you don't often always you don't often know where a good idea is going to come from or how a potential application might really be used because there is of course the laboratory context but especially the 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 ideas that you can get once you actually start to field and experiment uh, in a more operational sense can can suddenly give you a totally different perspective on on a given breakthrough especially when it comes to military technologies August, I've enjoyed the conversation. Before I let you go, you know, when you look at that list from DIA, is there one or two that you really wish could come to fruition? Is it if you know if you could choose, uh, or maybe not necessarily off that DIA list, but but another kind of again, we'll go back to the pages of sci-fi. Is there one or two that you would say, wow, that'd be really great if we could do that? There are a few items on this research list I think that are particularly relevant in the next ten to twenty years in terms of uh, American military capability. Just some of the, the program research it looked like on hypersonic uh, tracking. Now that, of course, is a, is a weapons capability we know that the Ch- uh, Chinese and the Russians are working on, as, as are the U.S. military. That is a very much uh, increasingly near-term, not even that far out sci-fi kind of threat. There are a few technologies out there that I have, of course, being a layman, a fairly low uh, understanding of. But when you start talking about wormholes or, uh, or, or invisibility capabilities, suddenly it seems like there may be the more... Uh, that maybe the more promising tracks to go down is as fantastical as they might seem. And in fact, if there are a rule of thumb, you might consider that the crazier the idea sounds, perhaps the more worthwhile the investment is. That's August Cole, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, talking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Jason talked to several experts about the Defense Intelligence Agency's Advanced Aerospace Threat and Identification Program. We'll post a link to Jason's story on the topic at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. And if you missed any of our interviews on the topic this hour, you can listen at that same link or subscribe to the On DOD podcast on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. 
That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu.